Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. I want to share uh, just something I feel important to share right now. So let me just kind of read this, and and uh, and this will be put on our church uh, social media uh, uh, after our services today. One of our core doctrinal teachings at Journey is that life is created, sustained, and most highly valued by God from life in the womb through our life on earth to our life in eternity. The decision this past Friday of our nation's Supreme Court is a long-awaited and much-anticipated step toward valuing and protecting all life from the womb to the tomb. While there is much rejoicing and gratitude for this ruling among those who have worked hard for decades to protect the innocent lives of the unborn, the work to provide meaningful support systems to assist expectant families in need has only just begun. For many years now, Journey has had a strategic mission partnership with Choices Women's Clinic in downtown Orlando and their new campus in Oviedo near the UCF campus. Choices has provided counseling, prayer, and emotional as well as material support to women facing crisis pregnancies for many years. Their front line, street-level work is needed now more than ever, and today I'm announcing that Journey is doubling our monthly mission support to them through the rest of this year. And I encourage you to make a special gift directly to them as well by going to choicesweminclinic.com. We also acknowledge the history of abortion in our country is contentious and complicated and has caused deep divisions among many people of goodwill who genuinely disagree over the rights of the unborn and the rights of women. I pray that the high court's ruling, which rightly returns the question of abortion to voters and their elected state representatives, will provide for civil deliberations and respectful discourse that will establish laws, policies, and programs ensuring the sanctity of human life in every form, as well as promoting the dignity and well-being of every woman and man who are faced with an unexpected pregnancy. And above all, I pray that journey will continue to be a place that helps all people find that life which is full, abundant, and eternal through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together right now. Father, we thank you that each one of us is fearfully and wonderfully made by you. You knew us when we were knit together in our mother's womb, and we thank you for the gift of human life in every form. We pray for our nation that is so divided about so many things right now, but especially those who are hurting, scared, or angry about Friday's Supreme Court ruling. I pray that we can see that a nation that values and protects the most vulnerable among us is a nation that is best for all of us. I pray for the church to walk in humility and work with compassion on behalf of those who are most in need and at risk as a result of this ruling. Thank you for life-supporting groups like Choices. Protect them and increase their provision 
as they provide urgently needed services to women and men who need their support. And Father, may we all seek to be an answer to our Lord's prayer that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we prayed and we all said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. I want to jump into this series that we've been in for the last three weekends called Things to Know Before You Go. And I'm kind of wrapping it up this week. As we begin, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have ever upgraded anything like your cell phone or your seat on an airplane or a rental car or maybe your boyfriend? (laughs) Don't raise your hand. Sometimes those things don't work out like we planned. Some clever person wrote this satirical tech support log about an unsuccessful boyfriend upgrade. Here's what she wrote. Dear tech support, last year I upgraded from boyfriend 5.0 to husband 1.0 and noticed a slowdown in the overall performance, particularly in the flower and jewelry applications that had operated flawlessly under boyfriend 5.0. In addition, Husband 1.0 uninstalled many other valuable programs, such as Romance 9.5 and Personal Attention 6.5, but installed undesirable programs such as NFL 5.0 and NBA 3.0. And now Conversation 8.0 no longer runs at all, and House Cleaning 2.6 simply crashes the system. I've tried running Nagging 5.3 to fix these problems, but to no avail, what can I do? Signed a Desperate Housewife. (laughs) Dear Desperate Wife, is the answer. First, keep in mind, boyfriend 5.0 is an entertainment package, while husband 1.0 is an operating system. (laughs) At the command line, try entering C colon slash I thought you loved me and download tier 6.2 and install guilt 3.0. If all works as designed, husband 1.0 should then automatically run applications jewelry 2.0 and flowers 3.5. But remember, overuse can cause husband 1.0 to default to grumpy silence 2.5 and beer 6.1. Beer 6.1 is a nasty program that will make husband 1.0 vulnerable to the dreaded dreaded fat belly virus and embed snoring loudly wave files into the system. Whatever you do, do not install mother-in-law 1.0 or try to reinstall another boyfriend program. These are not supported applications and will crash husband 1.0. In summary, husband 1.0 is a great program, but it does have limited memory and cannot learn new applications quickly. You might consider additional software to improve memory and performance. I personally recommend Hot Food 3.0 and Lingerie 9.9. Regards, tech support. Sometimes upgrades don't like out uh, don't work out like we thought they would at least not in this present world. However, the biblical writers talk about an upgrade that really will deliver what it promises. I call it the resurrection upgrade. And the primary place we read about it is in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Many biblical scholars believe this is the greatest chapter ever written about the bodily resurrection and what the bodily resurrection means to the Christian faith. In the early 1990s, an elite group of religious scholars composed of Protestants, Catholics, Jews, and atheists calling themselves the Jesus Seminar 
met together to evaluate whether Jesus actually said the things attributed to him by the New Testament gospel writers. So just to be clear, this group took it upon themselves 2,000 years after the fact to tell us if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are credible witnesses. Marcus Borg, one of the seminar leaders, said this of the account of Jesus' resurrection. He said, as a child, I took for granted that Easter meant that Jesus literally rose from the dead. I now see Easter very differently. For me, it is irrelevant whether or not the tomb was empty. Well, what Jesus' seminar leader Marcus Borg calls irrelevant, Jesus' follower named Paul called essential. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins, and we are to be more pitied than all men. The physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of Christianity. Not your Bible. Not your conservative orthodox beliefs. Not your denomination. It is the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because if that didn't happen, we wouldn't be here today. We would know or care much about most of what's in the Bible. Our beliefs would be all over the map. And no one could say that their belief is better or more right than any other because there would be no objective standard to measure any belief by. And it wouldn't matter what denomination you belong to or if you belong to any because the same fate awaits all of us on the other side of the grave, which is nothing good. This is why all the major creeds of the Christian faith down through the centuries have affirmed this essential, non-negotiable core component of the gospel message. I believe in the resurrection of the body. Everybody, let's read this out loud. Lake County Online, let's all read it together. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And yet many Christians are confused as to what that actually means. And they tend to spiritualize the resurrection of both Jesus and the dead, thus robbing it of its vital meaning. Of Americans who believe in a resurrection of the dead, two-thirds believe they will not have bodies after the resurrection, according to a Time Magazine article from several years ago. Now, I want you to think about that. A non-physical resurrection. What would that look like anyways? Randy Alcorn says a non-physical resurrection is like a sunless sunrise. There is no such thing. Resurrection by its very nature means we will have bodies, and if we don't have bodies, we won't be resurrected. An old scholar named R.A. Torrey writes, we will not be disembodied spirits in the world to come, but redeemed spirits in redeemed bodies in a redeemed universe. So it's critical that we not only affirm the resurrection of the dead, but that we understand the meaning of what we're affirming. You know, many times in the church, we've been guilty of dogmatically quoting and affirming things we don't even really understand. Like the pastor who parked his car in a no parking zone in a large city because he was short on time. He couldn't find a space with a meter. The pastor put a note under the windshield wiper that read this. I've circled this block a hundred times. If I don't park here, I'll miss my appointment. Forgive us our trespasses. When he returned, he found a citation from a police officer along with this note. I've patrolled this block for 10 years. If I don't give you a ticket, I'll lose my job. Lead us not into temptation. You know what? I'm not sure either one of those guys understand the meaning of those verses. I want us today to try to understand the ultimate upgrade promised by the resurrection. What it means to our enjoyment of heaven and the hope that it gives us in this present life. Let's start at the beginning. 
And when I say the beginning, I mean the beginning of everything. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says this, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Hebrew word for living being is the word nephesh. That's a fun word to say. Everybody say it with me right now. Nephesh. The point at which Adam became a nephesh is when God joined his body, the dust component, and the spirit, the breath component. Adam was not a living human being until he had both physical and spiritual components. What does this mean? That means the essence of what it means to be human is not just one who possesses a spirit, but one who has both a spirit and a body. Your body does not merely house the real you. It is, it is as much a part of the real you as your spirit is. Now, if that strikes you as something that sounds odd or maybe it doesn't sound right, it's because we've been way more influenced by Greek philosophers than by biblical writers. Greek philosophers taught that only the soul is good and is immortal, the body is bad and destined to perish. However, the biblical writers tell us that both body and spirit are created by God and are essential to being human. It's no coincidence that the Apostle Paul's most detailed defense of the physical bodily resurrection of the dead was written to the church at Corinth. More than any other New Testament Christians, the Corinthian Christ followers were surrounded by this dualistic Greek philosophies and concepts. Look at this map for just a, a second here. Take a look at this map. Do you see how close Corinth is to the city of Athens, Greece? The Corinthian letters were the only letters Paul wrote to Christians in the heart of Grecian culture. It's also interesting to note that Paul spent more time with the church at Corinth than any other church he planted. You know why? Because they were messed up. They were immature Christians clinging to the corrupt values of their culture. They were confused about what leaders to follow, taking other believers to court the meaning of marriage, the exercise of personal freedoms, the purpose of spiritual gifts, the nature of love, and most important of all, the resurrection of the body. So Paul is seeking to install a biblical worldview into these unstable believers, especially when it comes to the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. He wants them to understand that God designed our bodies to be an integral part of our total being. Our physical bodies are an essential aspect of who we are. They're not just temporary containers that house our spirits for a while and then will be done away with. Death is an abnormal condition because it tears apart what God created and joined together. God's original design was for our bodies to last as long as our souls. But when man sinned, the curse of physical death became a part of our reality. And at the first death, as biblical writers call it, the soul is separated from the body. And if you want to hear one of the best messages on that, you need to go back and listen to Pastor Harvey Carpenter's message on that from last Sunday. Pastor Harvey did a great job talking about what happens the second that we die. You can see that on our website. 
So when God sent Jesus to die, it was for our bodies as well as our spirits. He came not just to redeem the breath of life, the spirit, but also the dust of the ground, the body. When we die, it isn't that our real self goes to paradise and our fake self goes to the grave. It's that part of us goes to paradise and part of us goes to the grave to await our bodily resurrection. We will never be all that God intended for us to be until body and spirit are again joined in the resurrection. So I want to say this. Any views of the afterlife that settle for less than a bodily resurrection are clearly unchristian. But why should this matter? Why should we care? I think this truth has a huge impact on us and what we believe about the life to come. First of all, it assures continuity of personality. One of the most frequently asked questions about heaven, at least that I've been asked, is will we recognize and know each other in heaven? I believe the answer is yes, for many reasons, but it would be hard to recognize somebody without a body, wouldn't it? I mean, what would two spirits say to each other? George, is that you? Yeah, it's me. Wow, you've really lost some weight, George. It's almost like you're not there. <laughs> I mean, how's that work? The core of the gospel that Paul outlines in 1 Corinthians 15 is that while we, while we will be different in the resurrection, he writes, we'll all be changed, we will still be us. Let me give you an example. When I became a Christian as a teenage boy, I became a new person in Christ, and yet I was still the same person. I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but my mother still recognized me and called me to supper. My dog still licked me. My basketball coach still yelled at me. My girlfriend still hugged me. My teacher still kept a watchful eyes on me. I was still John Hampton, though a substantially transformed John Hampton. This same John Hampton will undergo another change at death and yet another change at the resurrection of the dead. But through all the changes, I will still be who I was and who I am. There will be a continuity of my personhood from this life to the next. And I will be able to say with Job, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Conversion to Christ does not mean trashing the old, but transforming it into something new. Despite the radical changes that occur as a result of salvation, death, and resurrection, we remain who we are meaning we have the same history, appearance, memory, interest, and skills. This is a principle that theologians call redemptive continuity. God will not scrap his original creation and start over. Uh, he, instead, he will take his fallen, corrupted children and restore, refresh, and renew us to our original design. Continuity of personality is promised in a passage like this, 1 Corinthians 15, 53. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. It is this perishable, perishable and mortal which puts on that imperishable and immortal. How do we know we'll be the same people? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The apostle John says when we see him, we will be like him. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. In other words, Jesus' resurrection body is a prototype. It's the pattern and it's the model of what we shall be like when our bodies are resurrected. And if resurrection meant the creation of an entirely new body, Christ's original body would have remained in the tomb. But Jesus said to his dismayed disciples after his resurrection, he said, it is I myself. 
He was emphasizing that the same person who was nailed to a Roman cross was the same person who just walked out of a borrowed tomb. His disciples saw the marks of the crucifixion, the nail-pierced hands and feet, the hole in his side from the soldier's spear. They had indisputable physical evidence that it was the same person in spirit and body. Jesus once said this. He said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Now, John, writing years after the actual events, with the benefit of Holy Spirit-guided hindsight, clarifies what Jesus meant. He said the temple he spoken of, the temple he had spoken of was his body. In other words, the body that rose is the body that was destroyed. I like how one Bible scholar put it when he said this, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between the body of Christ that died and the body that rose. And one of Christianity's oldest creeds affirms all the dead shall be raised up with the self-same bodies and none other. So the most basic truth about our resurrection bodies is this. They are the same bodies God created for us, but they will be raised to a greater perfection than we've ever known. We will experience the resurrection upgrade. Several years ago, I, I, that deserves an amen, right? Yeah. Several years ago, I was working on a sermon when a message box suddenly flashed on my computer screen. And the message box read, Adobe Reader Upgrade Available. It informed me that all I had to do was click on the install button and the upgrade would automatically begin. So I did. When my new upgraded Adobe Reader came up, I still recognized the basic elements of how it worked. It looked like the old Adobe Reader, only better. It had some new features that I hadn't seen before, but they allow the program to run quicker and more efficiently. Our resurrected bodies will no doubt have some new features that will allow us to function better than we ever have, but we'll still recognize our new bodies as being ours. Since Jesus' body is the model of what our resurrection bodies will be like, what kind of body did Jesus have after he came out of the grave? Well, we just need to look at the interactions he had with his disciples. One of the first thing he said to his disciples when he first appeared to them after the resurrection was recorded by Luke. He said, look at my hands and my feet. Why? Because that's where the nails went in. They would know. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see, look at this, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. He was clearly not some disembodied spirit. His body evidently had some type of skeletal structure and contained a covering of flesh. The risen Jesus walked and talked with people. He walked with two of his followers on the road to the village of Emmaus on the outskirts of Jerusalem. They asked him questions. He taught them. He guided them in their understanding of Scripture. They didn't say anything weird or out of place about his body. In other words, the soles of his feet didn't hover above the road as they walked on it. When he later ate with them, no one saw bread going down a transparent esophagus when he swallowed. They saw the resurrected Jesus as a normal, everyday guy. We know the resurrected Christ looked like a man because Mary called him sir when she encounters him not long after the resurrection, and she assumed he was the caretaker of the cemetery. At first, she didn't recognize his voice, but when he said her name, she recognized him instantly, and the gospel writer says she turned toward him. Why is that important? Modest women in first century Middle Eastern culture did not look strange men in the eye. So she probably hadn't gotten a good look at him before, but when she knew it was him, when he said her name, she instinctively turned and grabbed onto him to the point that Jesus said, Mary, 
You got to let me go. You got to go tell others about my resurrection. In another post-resurrection appearance, Jesus met up with his disciples on the shore of Lake Galilee. Jesus had started a fire. He was already cooking fish that he presumably caught himself. He cooked them, which means he didn't just snap his finger or wriggle his nose and a fully prepared meal instantly appeared. And he invited the disciples to join him. He said, come and have breakfast. His voice sounded familiar and was recognizable by them. In another appearance to the disciples, Jesus' resurrected body seamlessly interacted with the disciples' mortal bodies. Nothing indicates that his clothes were strange or that he glowed or had a halo. He drew them close enough to breathe on them, according to John's account of the resurrection. On the other hand, though the doors were locked, Jesus suddenly appeared in the room where the disciples were gathered. Jesus' body could be touched, clung to, consume food, and yet it could apparently materialize as well, suggesting that a resurrection body is structured in such a way to allow its molecules to pass through solid materials or to suddenly become visible or invisible and talk about a neat upgrade to our present bodies. Won't that be cool? Be like having superhero powers. Or maybe that option is only available to Jesus because he's the son of God and he's got to keep some cool stuff to himself. I don't know. <laughs> Many people think that all of us are going to have sculpted celebrity model body types. I agree with Randy Alcorn when he writes, I expect our bodies will be good looking, but not with a weightlifting, artificial implant, skin tuck, tanning booth sort of beauty. The sculpted physique of our culture, he writes, that our culture admires would be regarded as freakish in other places and times. Some cultures consider what we call slimness as unhealthy and what we consider plumpness as a sign of vitality and prosperity. The same genetic tendencies that make some people unattractive by one culture standards make them attractive in another. Our new bodies will have a natural beauty that won't require cosmetics or touch-ups. Think about, th seriously, think about this. Think about the most beautiful person that you've ever seen. And then realize that person is under the curse of sin. Meaning they are part of a fallen race living in a fallen place. I really believe if we saw Adam and Eve in their original creation, sinless beauty, they would take our breath away. And if they would have seen us as we are now, they likely would have been filled with shock and horror and remorse. You see, beauty as we know it is only a shadow of the original beauty that once characterized humanity and God's good creation. Ultimately, God will decide what our upgraded bodies will look like. But we certainly shouldn't assume that they will all look alike. The writer of Revelation chapter 7 informs us that divinely designed diversity will continue in heaven. He writes, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the lamb. I'm not sure how you would know people were from different nations, tribes, and language if everybody looked alike or were all the same color. God created the diversity of humanity and he wants that diversity to be celebrated throughout eternity without bias profiling and prejudices that seem to always accompany any talk about race in this fallen world. All of the different sizes and weights and skin colors will be healthy and appealing, untainted by the curse or disease or any other physical limitations or social restrictions. And we'll each, we'll each be happy 
with the form God designed for us. You know what I think? I think most people aren't looking for perfect bodies as much as they are the sense of well-being and approval that they think goes with it. No matter what our resurrection bodies look like, they'll please the Lord, ourselves, and others. In other words, we're not going to gaze in a mirror wishing for something to be different. The sinless inner beauty of the inner person will overflow into the beauty of the outer person. We'll feel neither insecurity nor arrogance. We won't attempt to hide or impress. We won't have to try to look beautiful. Friends, we will be beautiful. That's why I've always loved this answer to that frequently asked question, will we know each other in heaven? And the answer is we won't really know each other until we get to heaven. We won't really know each other, friends, until we get to heaven. Resurrection upgrades even more to those who have dealt with severe physical, emotional, and intellectual disabilities here. Johnny Erickson Tata has been a quadriplegic from the time she was 17 years of age. She was injured in a diving accident. And she says this, I still can hardly believe it. I was shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down. Will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone spinal cord injured like me? Or the hope it gives to someone who's bipolar? No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. And Johnny tells of a time when she was speaking to a class of intellectually disabled adult Christians. And they thought it was great when she said she was going to get a new body in heaven. But then she added, and you are going to get new minds. And the class erupted in cheers and applause. Friends, let me say this to you very honestly. Your body and your mind may be relatively healthy for the moment. For the moment. But as year after year goes by of living under the curse of sin, we long more and more to be that resurrected body, that resurrected person living on a resurrected earth with our, with our resurrected brothers and sisters and above all, our resurrected Lord. Jeremy Forrester was born with a twisted body, a slow mind, and a chronic terminal illness that had been slowly killing young Jeremy all of his life. Still, his parents had tried to give Jeremy as normal a life as possible. They sent him to St. Teresa's Catholic School. At the age of 12, Jeremy was only in the second grade, seemingly unable to learn. His teacher, Doris Miller, often became exasperated with him. He would squirm in his seat, drool, make grunting noises. At other times, he spoke clearly and distinctly as if a beam of light had penetrated the darkness of his brain. Most of the time, however, Jeremy just irritated his teacher. One day, Doris Miller called his parents and asked them to come to St. Teresa's for a parent-teacher consultation. As the forester sat quietly in the empty classroom, Doris said to them, you know, Jeremy really belongs in a special school. It isn't fair for him to be with younger children who don't have learning problems while there's a five-year gap between his age and that of the other students. Mrs. Forrester cried softly into a tissue while her husband spoke. Miss Miller, he said, 
There is no school of that kind nearby. It'd be a terrible shock for Jeremy if we had to take him out of this school. He really likes it here. Doris Miller sat for a long time after they left, stared out her classroom window. She wanted to sympathize with the foresters. After all, their only child had a terminal illness, but it wasn't fair to keep him in her class. She had, other, she had 18 other youngsters to teach, and Jeremy was a constant distraction. Furthermore, he's never going to learn to read or write. Why waste any more time trying? As she pondered the situation, guilt washed over her. Oh, God, she said aloud, here I am complaining when my problems are nothing compared to that poor family. Please help me be more patient with Jeremy. And from that day on, Doris Miller tried hard to ignore Jeremy's noises and his blank stares. And then one day, Jeremy limped up to her desk and said, I love you, Miss Miller. Jeremy spoke loudly enough for the whole class to hear. The other children snickered and Doris Miller's face turned red. She stammered, why, why that's very nice, Jeremy. Now, return to your seat. Spring came. And the children talked excitedly about the coming of Easter. Doris told them the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection from the grave. And then to emphasize the idea of new life springing forth, she gave each of the children a colorful plastic egg. And she explained to them, now I want you to take this empty egg home and you bring it back tomorrow with something inside that shows new life. Do you understand? Yes, Miss Miller, the children responded enthusiastically. All except for Jeremy. He just listened intently. His eyes never left her face. He didn't even make his usual noises. Had he understood what she'd said about Jesus' death and resurrection? Did he understand the assignment even? Perhaps she should call his parents and explain the project to them later that evening. Well, Doris Miller's kitchen sink stopped up. She called the landlord. She had to wait for an hour for him to come and unclog it. And then she still had to shop for groceries, iron a blouse, and prepare a vocabulary test for the next day. She completely forgot about phoning Jeremy's parents. So the next morning, 19 children came to school laughing and talking as they placed their plastic eggs in a large wicker basket on Miss Miller's desk. After they completed their math lesson, it was time to open the eggs. And in the first egg, Doris Miller found a flower. Oh, yes, a flower, certainly a sign of new life, she said. When the plants peek through the ground, we know spring is here. A little girl in the front row waved her arms and said, that's my egg, Miss Miller. Next egg contained a plastic butterfly, which looked very real. Miss Miller held it up. We all know that a caterpillar changes into a beautiful butterfly. Yes, that's a wonderful sign of new life, too. Little Judy said proudly, Miss Miller, that one's mine. Next, she opened an egg and found a rock with some moss growing on it. And she explained that even moss growing on a rock cleverly shows new life. And little Billy spoke up from the back of the classroom. He said, my daddy helped me with that one, Miss Miller. And then Doris Miller opened the fourth egg and she saw that it was empty. Surely it must be Jeremy's, she thought. And of course, he did not understand her instructions. If only she would not have forgotten to phone his parents, but she didn't want to embarrass him. So she quietly set the egg aside and reached for another one. And suddenly Jeremy spoke up, Miss Miller, aren't you going to talk about my egg? Startled Doris Miller replied, but Jeremy, your egg is empty. He looked into her eyes and he softly said, yes, Miss Miller, but Jesus' tomb was empty too. For a few seconds, Doris Miller could not breathe. When she could speak again, she said, Jeremy, do you know why Jesus' tomb was empty? Oh, yes, Jeremy exclaimed. Jesus was killed and put in there, but his father got him out. 
The recess bell rang. While the children excitedly ran out to the schoolyard, Doris Miller sat at her desk and sobbed. Three more months passed. Jeremy's lifelong terminal illness finally overcame him. He died at the end of the school year. Those who paid their respects at his memorial were curious and surprised to see 19 large, colorful plastic eggs stacked on top of his casket, and all of them were empty. Jesus declared in John chapter 14, verse 19, because I live, you also will live. The empty tomb is not irrelevant. It is essential. The arguments about the way to God end at that empty tomb. Our questions and our fears about what happens after our last heartbeat on this earth are answered at that empty tomb. Jesus has beaten what has beaten every other person who ever lived. And he promised, because I live, you also will live. The question is, do you believe this? And do you surrender to that? Would you bow your heads with me right now? So, Father, we, we thank you that you have given us. To some, it may seem just a a doctrine that's hard to understand, but it is the cornerstone of our faith. It's the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Father, I thank you for all that that means. And we don't have any clue. We've just barely scratched any understanding of what that means. But one day we will, because when we see him, we'll be like him. And Father, we look forward to that. And I thank you for that promise. Because you live, we can live in you. And we can know life that is full, abundant, and eternal in Jesus our Lord. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And through Jesus, anything is possible.